Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. This conference proposes to examine and sort out two rival views of God and morality. First, that morality can hold its ground on a naturalistic basis without any transcendent foundation. And second, that morality is not intelligible without being placed in some theistic framework. In this way, the debate has been typically formulated between those who defend a purely naturalistic and particularly atheistic ethics and those who espouse an ethics for which God is directly relevant. In other words, the usual formulation of the debate treats the above two claims as mutually exclusive. Either ethics needs no transcendent foundation, or otherwise morality's intelligibility requires a broadly theistic framework, uh, but never both. In this paper, I shall argue that this approach excludes, in its very formulation, an important third alternative that would accept both of the above claims. Furthermore, I argue that this third alternative is no uninteresting or eccentric option in logical space, but rather one of great historical and philosophical importance, since I take Aristotle to be chief among those who hold it. My thinking about the topic in these terms began about a year ago, when at lunch with two atheist professors. They both specialize in Aristotle and are both very committed to the idea that there are objective moral truths. In many ways, people like this can be the greatest allies for those pursuing philosophy within the Catholic tradition, precisely because of their commitment to a rationally intelligible world, to nature, and to what we might call the natural law, although they would certainly deny that there's a lawgiver. Knowing that I'm a Catholic, as well as committed to a broadly Aristotelian philosophy, they pose the following pointed question. So why do you think that we need a God to have objective morality? The question took me by surprise, since we had just ordered. <laughs> um, aside from being a little forward, the question struck me as making an unfair assumption. But I decided to go with my gut. Well, I don't think we need to talk about God to make objective claims about morality. After a brief excursus into Catholic doctrine of judgment and damnation, airing their just concerns about people who are only good because they dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, they finally asked, so why have a God then? If you don't need it for ethics, why mention it at all, especially in philosophical contexts? Now they had me pinned. If God is to be philosophically relevant, at least in some respect, and if I deny that God is directly re relevant to moral philosophy, only one option remains. Speculation about God must be necessary for natural philosophy. At the risk of sounding like a fool, I replied a little provocatively. Well, while there may not be good ethical arguments, there are nevertheless scientific reasons for positing the existence of a god. I thought such a cavalier claim would have been better received by students of Aristotle, but in the discussion that followed, whenever I cited the philosopher's own arguments, my friend simply replied, but modern science. I shall not in this talk go into the various arguments for the existence of a god, which have their basis in natural philosophy. Most everyone will be roughly familiar with Aristotle's arguments and Aquinas' own. But note, here is the dilemma that faces the contemporary theist. Either God is only knowable by faith, and therefore untouchable by philosophical inquiry, or not. And if not, if we have non-religious, or I dare say secular reasons for positing God's existence 
He must be relevant to ethics or natural philosophy, each discipline broadly conceived. But in both cases, either ethical or physical, nature alone seems sufficient to explain the explananda. So why posit God? Now, another way into this discussion is a naturalistic argument using possible worlds, which I have heard on several different occasions. While the particular logical structure can differ, it goes roughly like this. Let's grant that we live in a world with a god. Let's then take you and perhaps some of your friends and transport you to a world in which there is no god. If we assume that you are what you are, using a broadly Aristotelian is what it is assumption, a kind of benign or broad naturalism, then presumably the same moral law would apply in a godless world as in this world. Everyone save the most hardline divine command theorists would accept such an assumption and feel the naturalistic pull of the thought experiment. Now what is right, I think, about these kind of thought experiments is that they point out the ways in which speculation about the divine turns out to be irrelevant to making moral judgments of right and wrong, at least in the most basic ethical discussions. What seems to matter most for moral judgments from a philosophical perspective is a reflection on what kind of beings we are. One way out of this conclusion, of course, would be to deny the basic argumentative move, the appeal to a broad or big tent naturalism that underwrites the is what it is assumption. On such a view, God commands what he commands. In one world, he commands that cannibalism is always prohibited. In another, he commands that cannibalism is mandatory. In a third, he does not exist. And as Ivan says, everything is permitted. Against this, the thought experiment puts varying degrees of naturalistic sympathies to work in order to undermine not only divine command theories, but in general, all ethical arguments for the existence of a god. And the most obvious way to escape the trap is to deny entirely nature's relevance to ethics. But this is something most of us just don't want to do. As you might expect, however, while I admit this is the most obvious dodge, it's certainly not our only escape. Where these naturalistic arguments go wrong is in how they apply the is-what-it-is condition. The argument makes a hidden assumption that the existence of God in one world or another will have as much bearing on me and on the moral law which binds me as the existence of, say, yetis or little green men. There might be some encounters that would be impossible in the godless or ET-less world, and therefore we may lack certain cultural phenomena like miracles, churches, Area 51, abductions. And furthermore, in such a godless world, I might lack certain moral obligations such as sacrifice that bind me in this world. But the basic moral obligations I have to the godless natives and to the friends who have taken this trip with me will not change. The naturalist's hidden assumption is that while my life may surely be different in a godless world, it would only be different in particular respects, leaving intact the lion's share of the moral law. But there's reason to suppose that this hidden assumption is false. For someone like Aristotle or Aquinas, God is not going to be just some other existing thing, but he will be causally relevant to me and to my very existence. Indeed, Aristotle says that if there were several different universes, there would need to be a prime mover for each one. And so for Aristotle, God qua remote efficient cause or efficient, uh, ultimate final cause is going to be as relevant to me as, as is my soul qua formal cause and my flesh and bone qua material cause. Talk of transporting me to a world without God is about as intelligible as imagining that I get transported to a world without calcium or water. I just can't exist in a world without water or calcium. And this is not to say that I couldn't survive there. Rather, I could never exist there in the first place, lacking a chief material constituent, 
and therefore ceasing to be what I am without, for example, water. I suggest that for Aristotle and for those that follow him, imagining me being what I am in a world without God is much more like imagining my place in a world without water than my place in a world without Sasquatch. So what's the upshot? It looks as if from a broadly Aristotelian perspective, from a big tent naturalism, ethical reasons for positing the existence of a god are always gonna be posterior to physical reasons for positing the existence of a god. If ethics has anything at all to do with nature, then any connection between God and morality must be mediated through nature. The thought experiment makes this clear. The only two ways out of its atheistic conclusion are, one, to reject the broadly naturalistic assumption, denying nature's relevance to morality, or two, to deny, for physical reasons, a certain application of this assumption to godless possible worlds. Now, I concede that I'm here urging a certain philosophical approach, namely one which considers God to be prime mover and first cause, and further one which is committed to a broad naturalism. I admit that I've done little to motivate these two substantial claims of the approach, but my point about the debate itself and the taxonomy of views available is assumption neutral. The debate often does, but ought not, force upon us the choice between God and nature. Someone from the philosophical perspective I am urging would not accept the terms of such a debate. He would not escape the thought experiment's atheistic conclusion by denying nature, by reframing the question. Maybe nature truly is morality's foundation, but how is nature itself intelligible? And according to the approach I am urging, the answer is clear. Moral philosophy is first and foremost rooted in reflections about our nature and not immediately about our relation to the divine. And secondly, that our nature and our very existence is unintelligible outside of a broadly theistic framework. On this approach then, both of the rival claims framing this conference are affirmed. God is not the foundation of morality, but morality's intelligibility, insofar as it's rooted in our nature, is nevertheless bound up in a theistic framework. Now something difficult follows from these considerations. Arguments for the existence of a god are going to have to take on, as my atheist friends put it, modern science. Happily, this challenge lies outside the scope of this paper, but I shall make one brief remark. But modern science is not really an argument. What is it that modern science is supposed to show? Presumably by showing that nature is sufficient to explain the things to be explained, naturalists conclude that God is not necessary, at least not from the perspective of natural philosophy. A similar move is made by naturalists in moral philosophy. And yet those in the broad tradition of Aristotle who posit the existence of God do not thereby deny the importance of nature, but rather they defend it. In short, how could people devoted to the same philosophical tradition, to the importance of nature, draw such wildly divergent conclusions about God? I shall return to this question. But this difficulty is paired with a significant advantage, since on this view, morality is principally grounded in nature and only derivatively and indirectly situated within a broad theistic framework. We need not speculate or speak about God in order to do moral philosophy. As Aristotle says quite often, we begin with what is more knowable to us and proceed to what is more knowable in itself. Although morality is completely unintelligible if God doesn't exist, since all of nature would be similarly unintelligible, nevertheless, any given rational agent need not actively reflect upon the divine in order to make particular moral judgments, or even to develop more abstract theory of, theories of morality. This is a consequence of insisting with the atheistic naturalists 
that morality really can be understood apart from any active speculation or explicit speculation about God. Nature is, in a sense, sufficient to proceed in the inquiry. And this is quite an advantage, not only because it comports with our sophisticated intuitions about possible worlds and the content of morality, but because it comports with the conditions of the most pedestrian and everyday moral judgments. Now, I should clarify two related points before continuing. First, I don't mean to deny that the God could choose to reveal and promulgate particular laws to humanity. Indeed, as a Catholic, I believe he has, in fact, chosen to do this. But in good Thomistic spirit, I draw a distinction between divine law, which is directly promulgated by the divine qua lawgiver, and the natural law, which is, in a sense, indirectly promulgated by God as author of nature. Aquinas uses the term imprint when he discusses the natural law, calling it a participation of nature in the eternal law of God. And this is the second point. For Aquinas, the natural law gives us general moral principles, which are rooted in our nature, as an imprint of the divine. Divine law, in contrast, is a species of positive law, properly analogous to particular human laws, which, among other things, the divine law has the natural function of correcting and confirming those human laws which can apply the natural law with varying degrees of error and disagreement. For Aquinas, the divine law is not absolutely necessary, but is rather a kind of gift to man. In strict philosophical terms, from a broadly Aristotelian perspective, morality is rooted first and foremost in our nature, of which God is the author. I might make a similar point about any supernatural end toward which the God might deign to direct us. Any moral consideration of such a supernatural end will, by definition, lie outside the scope of moral philosophy. I should make one more clarification about, this no about the notion of natural end. Aquinas seems to take God to constitute even our natural end, although under a different specification of God as end. And I'm aware that this is a minefield, so I'm just kind of noting it and moving, moving on. While this view applies good Aristotelian principles, hunting for a good which is most complete, self-sufficient, and choice-worthy, it is nevertheless unclear whether Aristotle himself thought this and further, whether those in the broad tradition of Aristotle must think this. Briefly, I think this is true for three reasons. First, early in the Nicomachean Ethics Book One, Aristotle entertains a godlike object as the human good, but insists that it would not be achievable by action, and the human good we are seeking must be achievable by us. In this way, a supernatural end with the divine object is gonna be possible for Aristotle, but only if supernatural means are also supplied. Secondly, Aristotle, speaking once more against the notions of the good itself, contends that while an outline of, ultimate, of the ultimate human good may be helpful for the pursuit of particular ends, a full account of it might not be relevant to the work of the weaver or the carpenter. And finally, while God does, not, while God does indeed earn explicit mention in Book 10, it is not clear that this explicit mention entails that God serves as morality's foundation for Aristotle. Quite to the contrary, I take Aristotle there to be comparing two natural functions, one of the divine and one of man, which bear some important likeness to one another. If anything, the comparison in Book 10 is a claim about nature and not a claim about man's uh, moral foundation. I shall now set this point aside. I gather that Mr. Brian Donahue will be demolishing everything I've just said uh, tomorrow morning. Um, but in this way, I think that we can do moral philosophy without explicitly talking about God 
we can and should ally ourselves with those who are pursuing an intelligible morality based on our intelligible nature. As far as morality and nature goes, we are in broad agreement with them, as long as they continue assuming that nature is intelligible itself. If anyone should doubt nature's intelligibility, we direct them to, toward a study of natural philosophy, in which an appeal to God is going to be more relevant. The problem arises, however, when our friends go on the offensive and use nature's very intelligibility against God and against theism, either in ethics or in physics. They find that natural and moral philosophy are entirely possible, free of divine speculation, and that these disciplines saddle us with extensive knowledge, knowledge of the highest order, not merely of the that, but of the why. But one can respond to nature's intelligibility in one of two ways. One can see it as evidence against God, since nature alone is sufficient, or one can see it as evidence for God, since the order of nature itself stands in need of explanation. Our atheistic naturalists are clearly in the former camp, and it is precisely this dilemma they hoist upon us. Look, we've come a long way reflecting on nature, why posit anything beyond that? And they devise thought experiments and arguments to tear down the argumentative artifices which have been built up in defense of the divine craftsman. And in our piety, we are tempted to respond rashly, to deny nature's sufficiency, and to insist upon the necessity of God at every level of analysis. We rebut that without God, moral philosophy would be impossible. But without fully specifying why, they revoke our naturalistic credibility. They demand that we choose between God and nature. And in our piety, we far too often oblige. But on the view I have been urging throughout this talk, we should reject this dilemma, and we should refuse to conduct the debate on those terms. We need not destroy God to save nature. God is not just another thing in the world like yetis or little green men about whose existence we can speculate without any significant bearing on my existence or on the order of nature as a whole. Godless naturalism frightens theists, and rightly so. But that's not the only kind of naturalism. On the other hand, we must not destroy God, nature to save God. Indeed, it is a testament to God's wisdom and power that he should operate through an order of secondary causes. Natureless theism frightens naturalists, and rightly so. But, is in, but it is incumbent upon us to remind them that natureless theism isn't the only kind. And so when our atheistic naturalist friends ask us, if there were no God, would everything be permitted? Perhaps we should reply, sure, because in a godless world, nature is undefined, nothing exists, anything is possible, and in this way, everything is permitted. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.